0: Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at Patreon.com slash Astonishing Legends. A giant up on a mountain range. I just got stopped by like some CIA agent. You know there's something right behind you, But right? Ed, you seem like you have something you want to say. I don't think you can park there. So you've been to Point
1: Pleasant. Near Cheesecake Factory. This is all looking up. Men in Black law enforcement thing.
0: If he was shooting that on the way up, he would have had to go way out of his way. CIA
1: or... I just want to give you an update. I'm not dead. Well, that's why this is on Patreon. Legends are still being created right now. Astonishing Legends would like to thank HelloFresh, Peloton, Upside,
0: our contributors, at patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: The Peruvian desert certainly holds a wide variety of mysteries and secrets. All deserts do, but only Peru is home to the legend of the Nazca Lines. The mysterious lines are a stunning archaeological wonder, carved into the desert floor on such a grand scale that they are visible from space. The lines depict hundreds of figures ranging from giant spiders to intricate geometric shapes. Located on an arid coastal plain, these geoglyphs stretch across an estimated 175 miles and have been baffling scientists for centuries. They are believed to have been created between 500 BCE and 500 CE by the ancient Nazca people, though their exact purpose remains unknown. Some theories suggest that they were used as part of religious ceremonies or astronomical observations, while others believe that they may have served some agricultural purpose. Controversy swirls around the idea that they may have even been navigational guides for visitors from another world. First mentioned in a book by Spanish conquistador Pedro Cieza de León in 1553, the first person who attempted to analyze them was Peruvian archaeologist Toribio Mijia Cespe, who noticed them while hiking through the area in 1926. Still, it wasn't until the invention of flight that the accurate scale and scope of the lines were truly understood when commercial airline pilots began flying over them in the 1930s. They were shocked at what their bird's eye view revealed spilling out onto the desert floor beneath them for miles in every direction. Subsequently, the lines were studied by dozens of archaeologists and mathematicians, including Dr. Paul Koshok and the venerable Dr. Maria Reike, who lived on the Nazca Plain where she studied them for most of her life. It's safe to say that without her work, today they might be significantly damaged. Researchers have recently discovered over 100 new designs at the site. While some of these new figures are small and simple, others are much larger and more complex suggesting that there may still be much more to learn about this baffling site. In this episode, we will explore what these incredible shapes may have meant or still mean and why they were created in such an unconventional place. From the suggestion of it being a celestial calendar to an alien landing site, when this two-part series is done, we will have delved into all of the stories that make up the astonishing legend of the Nazca Lines. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook,
1: and this is Forrest Burgess. Theories are all imagination. All you can do is measure carefully and observe, and the conclusions flow naturally from that. NASCAR researcher Dr. Maria Reika to author Evan Heddingham. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part
0: series on the Nazca lines. <laughs>
1: Y nosotros estamos de vuelta. Que somos gente. Oh, very good. I think.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right, folks. Now we're getting in trouble in multiple what? languages. Uh, welcome to the new year where we're kicking it off with a bang here. Uh, one quick announcement. Astonishing Legends is uh, finally revamping the Astonishing Research Corps, or the ARC for short. For the first time in five years, we're excited to unveil the brand new ARC in Residence program. Now, you can now apply to join our private Discord, this is new, and be an active part of the conversation. Immerse yourself behind the scenes of the ARC world. This exclusive experience is available for six to eight weeks at a time. When that time is up, you can always reapply if you want. And when you apply, if you don't hear from us right away, don't worry. We're going to be accepting folks on a rolling basis, and we'll keep your spot on the list. The reason we're doing this is because previously we had to limit membership to manage the research work effectively uh, because the group would get too big or we couldn't add more people to it. It was just a lot of logistics to it that we didn't predict. So the trade-off was that that meant permanent access for folks kept us from letting new people join, especially when an existing contributor became inactive. This solves that problem. So to join the new ARC, get all the information and apply through our website at astonishinglegends.com. Dot com slash arc, A-R-C, dash apply. Again, that's AstonishingLegends.com slash arc, dash apply. We can't wait for you guys to get involved. If you have any questions or need assistance, don't hesitate to reach out via email. We would love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to get engaged with and contribute to the show. So check out AstonishingLegends.com slash A-R-C dash apply, A-P-P-L-Y. Are you going to tell them the other thing? Uh, what what other thing? Oh, that thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thing. does anyone here watch History's Greatest Mysteries? I know I do. It's a really good show. I very much enjoy it. Lots of common ground with astonishing legends hosted by the legendary himself, Sir Lawrence Fishburne. And so you can't go wrong there. But the fourth season is premiering January 30th at 9 on the History Channel and available to stream the next day. Ooh, the fourth season. I wonder why we're bringing that up. I cannot wait mm. to check it out. Yeah, tune
0: in, really interesting topics, and you might see somebody you know. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. to see people I know on TV. Okay, folks, we've got a great show tonight, so let's get into it. So what
1: are the Nazca Lines? Where did you first hear them,
0: Scott? You know, it's this is one of those things that I have a very clear memory of as a kid, and it's mm-hmm. funny, you do so many things that, like, they, they just fly out of your head forever. But I remember this clear as a bell, and even way before we had decided to do this episode... I was playing a game of Trivial Pursuit with my family. Yeah. And there was a question. And this is back when <laughs> there's probably some folks that haven't even mm-hmm. heard of Trivial Pursuit. I
1: it think was it's still around.
0: It's around, but I mean, it was a phenomenon. Everybody, oh, sure. yeah, everyone had it. Everyone was playing it every weekend. And it was a lot of fun. The questions were amazing, and there were yeah. thousands of them. It was really a blast. And so I was playing with my family and this question came up, was like, what are the depictions of animals and runways in Peru called? You know, Mm. it's it's always Mm -hmm. an oversimplification. but, And I remember being like, I have literally have no idea what this is. And then the answer to the question was the Nazca Lines, which being of my disposition and yours too, I've always been into this stuff and that intrigued me right out of the gate. I was like, wait, Uh what? Even as a kid, I was like, wait, what is that? And then of course, somebody in my family who was older and wiser, immediately got the answer, and they probably got a piece of pie for it,
1: I mean, Oh, you're, just, you're talking about the wedges, the cheese wedges.
0: No, it's, it's a pie. It's like soda pop. But is it a wedge? Yeah. Is it a pie? I don't know. I went
1: by both. I called it both uh, cheese and a pie, pie wedge? wedges. But uh, Oh, yeah, cheese.
0: They, I've yeah, never cheese, heard like, that.
1: A, like a yeah. cheese wheel. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, both yeah. delicious. But the idea is that, uh, yeah, you would fill that a little round container as you move yeah, around you the won. board. Right, there yeah. you go.
0: Well, so how about you though? Do you have, I mean, you're you're so much older than I am. I, I, know, I don't know,
1: I know, I'm, <laughs> I'm barely just, I mean. awake now. Uh, <laughs> actually, this is an interesting connection because I hadn't thought about this. You were trying to prep me for this. Like, you know, think about when you first heard of this. And it's like, I, I had to kind of reach back into the my own way back machine in the, in the dusty addled cobwebs of my mind. And of course, like so many things, this is an interesting connection here because- One of the major things that we're going to be talking about tonight is how most people know about the Nazca Lines and the controversial somewhat figure behind this, and that you cannot separate the two. You cannot dismiss this person's work. It's Eric Von Daniken. Yes. And his seminal, you could say in a way, book from 1969, Chariots of the Gods, because it's got a question mark at the end. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but a lot of people would just say, ah, pish posh, you know, that's ridiculous, silly stuff. But really he is not only the major reason that the general population nowadays, and back then, especially in the 70s knew about the Nazca lines is because of his book. And also because that book generated a show, which so many of us in this genre, doing this thing that we do, credit as getting us interested in all these topics and that is in search of way
0: before unsolved mysteries in search of was the original show of oh this yeah of honest. course I, by the way all due respect to unsolved mysteries i'm an absolute yeah, fanatic especially of the uh, robert stack run of that show but uh in search of too, it, and you got to be just a teeny bit older to remember that but yeah. i mean it's freaking spock man it's spock hosting a <laughs> show about really weird stuff i've got a box set on dvd yeah. i went to watch it a couple months ago and I put in a, like an episode and my wife was like, you got to turn that off. It's creeping me out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Leonard Nimoy was creeping her out? No, just the show. It's a spooky oh, show. It uh, is. its it is. a
0: spooky vibe. Yeah. It did have a spooky vibe. Way more than Unsolved Mysteries does. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would say so, depending on the topic here, because they're kind of mysterious and, and sometimes kind of dark. And it was the first time a lot of us had heard about these things. And I remember yeah. for me, though, I, it was probably... An episode from this series. And for those of you who don't know, and for those of you who do, here's a little bit of a refresher just from the wiki entry. So, In Search of is an American television series that was broadcast weekly from 1977 to 1982, devoted to mysterious phenomena, of course. It was created after the success of three one hour TV documentaries produced by creator Alan Landsberg. Remember that name? Yeah, and here they are, In Search of Ancient Astronauts in 1973, and that was based on the book Chariots of the Gods by Erich von Daniken. Next one, In Search of Ancient Mysteries, and then the third, The Outer Space Connection, both in 1975. Those latter two were then turned into paperbacks uh, written by Landsberg. And here's the thing, they all featured originally narration by Rod Serling, who was the initial choice to host the spin-off show. But Rod Serling sadly died before the production started. And so Leonard Moy was then selected to be the host. So there you go. It could have been Rod Serling if he'd survived, which was monumental because he is so formative. Uh, t- talk about Twilight Zone. It's all connected, Scott. It's all a, uh, a wellspring of interest for so many of us in this generation and continues to be so. And of course, in 2002, they tried to revamp it with Mitch Pelleggi, who's terrific uh, yes. as the host. And then nowadays, it currently exists as of 2018 with host Zachary Kinto, airing on the History Channel. Yeah, Spock 2.
0: Spock number one,
1: <laughs> Spock number two. He's a great Spock, by the way. I love his no, you can't I go love wrong bookending performance. yeah. Spock performances. So, yeah. <laughs> But here's the actual thing. It was an early episode. It was actually season one of In Search of, episode three, titled Ancient Aviators, which aired April 24th, 1977. Here's the byline or the uh, summary of that. Ancient Aviators, are there signs of alien visitation here on Earth? Might the mysterious markings on the Nazca Plain in Peru be landing instructions for UFOs? So they're, of mm. course, uh, taking that theme from Von Daniken's book. But the success of that book, questioning the Nazca lines and the arrival and chariot of the gods, because he he's just putting it as a question. I'm just asking questions. Yeah. He puts it out there, but that spawned in search of. So we have that book to thank, not only that, but for the knowledge of the lines themselves. So there you go.
0: It probably leads to you listening to this show right now, frankly, because when you think about the, uh, the, (laughs) this is nuts when you think about, I hadn't thought about this for us until you, I mean, you said you were going to mention this, but it's like you could go back to Von Daniken's take on the Nazca lines and that book and the probably unexpected success of it, over 7 million copies sold as of today, I believe. Right. And you could go, and it was a phenomenon back then, and regardless of how people have labeled it pseudoscience, and they say, you know, it's, it's drawing too many conclusions, and it's not a sound thought or sound reasoning, right. but when you read his later books, which uh, we have read for this episode he's just like, man, a lot of people put words in my mouth. They said things, and boy, (laughs) do we know about this. They said I said things I never said. So I I sympathize with Mr. Von Daniken on that front for sure. But regardless of where you come down on Mr. Von Daniken's theories, the simple fact of the matter is you could draw a straight line from him publishing that book, its overwhelming success, leading to Alan Landsberg kicking off in search of with those specials that then turned into that TV show that affected me and Forrest in our formative years that probably also led to Unsolved Mysteries, which in turn led to us doing what we're doing now. It's weird to think that our origin story might start on the Nazca Plain.
1: Yeah, in a way it's all connected. <laughs> well, it's we're drawn to that area in itself. It, it holds so much mystery and charm and and wonder. It's also a very rich, not just culturally, but for archeology span as well as we're gonna take a look at. But this in particular, I gotta say, even some of the most well-respected archaeologists have to admit, it's like, yeah, Van Daniken's book, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think anything that he said was possible or likely, but we have to credit him for bringing it to the public attention because it was known before that, but not widely known, as many things you know, pre-internet are only regional sometimes, and for those in the know, but these geoglyphs, as they're called technically, uh, spark a lot of imagination because people want to know how they did it, why did they do it.
0: And that's the important thing, again, to remember about Von Daniken is he put these on the map. He put them into the zeitgeist and they've stayed there since he did that. And that's how they got into Trivial Pursuit. And that's how all the people that when this comes on, the ones that tweeted at us, oh, great, the Nazca lines. The reason you know about them is Von Daniken. Whether you agree with him (laughs) or not, he is the reason that they initially got out into the world in that way. Now, other people came along later that had no relation to him that preserved them and studied them, and they're completely not connected. But in terms of the public perception, he gets credit for that.
1: And it was so popular back in the day that he was able to uh, set up a theme park in Switzerland. He's Swiss. It was popular for a few years, and then sadly, attendance trailed off. And they closed it down, but he did have a whole section or pavilion dedicated on the Nazca lines. And it was dedicated to all different kinds of other stuff that, uh, that all the stuff that we liked. So
0: I don't understand that. I mean, I guess we need the astonishing legends to everybody's like, let's do a theme park. I mean, Dolly did it. <laughs> it's doing amazing. Disneyland well, and, and Dolly and who else? I, I don't know. You know, here in North Carolina up in the mountains, we had the Tweetsy railroad. And then, What's left of the Wizard of Oz Park, which I feel like they just reopened. It's got a yellow brick road and everything.
1: He needed maybe better rides and uh, better stand food. Yeah, what uh, kind of rides is it? The the barbecue skewers they have at uh, Disneyland or the uh, Indiana Jones ride. Uh, Delicious. But the idea, though, is that there was a lot of popularity at this time. And there are some very polarizing figures in this realm, especially when you start to talk about ancient astronauts. And again, that's nothing new, folks. As you can see, that's an old, decades old now idea.
0: Yeah. With 67, 68, I, I mean, or 68, 19. I was actually surprised when we got into this, how old that book was. I didn't realize it was right. that old. Oh yeah. To yeah, me, yeah. it was like the 70s to 80s. I didn't realize it went back to Well, essentially far.
1: it was. I think it, the first one came out, what, 69. So you have the whole decades of the 70s when this stuff was very popular and people had an interest in it. You yeah. Know, there are some people that, uh, let's just say they like to dislike them. Yeah. And they're in the genre, especially about uh, this alternative ancient history. And von Daniken, though, seems to be one person who, yeah, you may not agree, but he's such a nice guy, very welcoming and very accepting and just very charming and open and inclusive. And he's just like, you know, not out to pick a fight. And he's one of those guys, like if you go to a conference, he'll stay for two hours sitting on the bench outside the conference room chatting with people, answering their questions. Yeah, But he's just like, yeah, I'll stay here. I was like, I love talking about this stuff. So he's, people view him a little bit more, let's just say they're a little nicer to him and they seem to be, even though they don't agree with it. But folks, it's not all about chariots of the gods and Mondannikin in this part anyway. We're going to get to the nitty gritty of what's known, what's accepted. What does mainstream archeology span think of this and other researchers and scholars about what we have here? Because I find it's a blend of culture And we have something that's pretty monumental and would have taken a lot of orchestration and coordination to do. I'm not sure you could organize enough people today to do this and agree to keep doing it over hundreds of years. That's what we're looking at here. But there's a reason for all of this, and that's where it's at. So the Nazca Lines are an archaeological site that's located in a huge desert plain in Peru. And what these images are, they're known as geoglyphs, scratches in the landscape, And a geoglyph is essentially a large picture made on the ground using something from the landscape that will stand the test of time, like rocks or stones, or in this case, the you could say the rearrangement of rocks and stones. There's two types of geoglyphs. There's positive and negative. And uh, that doesn't mean that they
0: have a smiley face or sad face. It means a positive geoglyph is made by adding things on top of the surface, like a help sign made out of dead trees by a castaway on an island. That would be a positive geoglyph. Right. The Nazca lines are not positive geoglyphs, but negative geoglyphs like Forrest just described. These are these are made by taking something away from the surface and thereby revealing or relieving the shape or the pattern. Now, interestingly, before we launched the show, one of the images we considered basing our logo on, we've mentioned this before, was the Uffington White Horse. Yeah,
1: I love that. Just because I think of the, I could say the art direction, the ancient art direction in that, to me, it's a little like Japanese Sumi painting, where it's it's the least yeah. amount of lines to convey what that is. You instantly know what that is.
0: And yeah, just, it's uh, just beautiful. A, it's
1: very artistic. And that's done by a lot of people on the ground who theoretically could not see it from high up above. Right,
0: which is what we're gonna be talking about tonight. And and that's a three thousand-year-old geoglyph in Oxfordshire, England.
1: Yes, but I think the Nazca lines are far more well known. Well, they, they take up a lot more space and there's a lot more variety to them. And of course, there's a lot more mystery that's been attached to them, right or wrong, but it's been applied over the top like the lines themselves. So currently the prevailing consensus of the total amount of construction time would be between four hundred BCE and 500 current era, or about 900 years. So almost 1,000 years. And some of them, they think, may be older, almost as much as 1,500 or 2,500 years. That's a little speculative, but they have dated some of the materials around, and that's when they think is the whole time span. So imagine, again, an art project with a bunch of people that last 900 years. Well, the first phase was the Paracas phase. Those were the people that existed before the Nazca. They were kind of in the same region. They did their own thing with uh, geoglyphs, and they had their own traditions. But one group of people starts to fade out. The other ones kind of move into their area. They adopt some of the things, but they're distinct, certainly. Mm -hmm. And they are just as mysterious, I would say. So that's one type of culture for the area. Then transforming, blending, going away, new people coming in, or transforming into this other culture, which is similar but different. And that's what we have is the Nazca. So the Paracas phase would have been uh, 400 to about 200 BCE, so that lasted around 200 years. And then the second phase, the Nazca phase, spanned about 200 BCE to 500 current era, or 700 years. So as I said in the cold open, the types of shapes that you get uh, range from uh, geometric patterns and shapes to animals to even one that they call, it's, again, this is uh, sparking the imagination, but one that looks like a uh, humanoid form, but not completely human. Uh, everything's kind of stylized w- with these, which is another aspect is that it's kind of beautiful art yeah. that people did yeah, on a that's... very large scale and over 175 square miles. It's a huge project.
0: Yeah, and recently scientists have used drones to find over 100 new figures. So, you can see there's still a lot to learn about Nazca. The designs measure anywhere from 400 to 11 meters across like or or 440 to 12 100 yards Mm. and span an area of around 50 square kilometers. Some are just straight lines, while others are figurative patterns, such as animals and plants, and the total length of all of them combined is estimated at being more than 1,300 kilometers or 800 miles. Now, again, that's over 1,000 years of work, but still, that is a lot of work. And as we said, they're negative geoglyphs. So they're made by removing pebbles to expose a yellow, grayish layer
1: of dirt that was beneath them. The desert varnish is stripped away. Yeah, we see this in other deserts as well It's the oxidized layer of dirt and rocks, which is thicker. And then you go down about four to six inches, almost to a foot, maybe in some areas, but you'll get this lighter uh, yellowish gray substrate or dirt that's underneath. And it's it really stands out. Now, here's the thing. It's not hard to do. Joe Nickel did the same thing. One of the sources we mentioned, Dr. Edwin Barnhart, demonstrates this by using his foot. And uh, he and some people uh, just made us, you know, not in the area, but they made a a rectangle that you could see from a couple hundred feet away. It's like, yeah, it works. So it's no mystery as to how they were able to do this. And it's not very hard. It just takes a lot of coordination though. And you got to get a lot of people doing the right thing in line. And so you get a cumulative effect with it, which is pretty outstanding. And most
0: of them are anywhere from four to six inches deep, but they can also be up to six feet wide. Right. If you don't include what they call the runways, which are even wider, we'll talk about those as well. But uh, it's really something to see. And there's a lot of what seems to be chaos to it in terms of... When things were made, uh, things overlapping, disparate styles of, you know, some are straight lines. These go up for several miles. Then you have these animals, and the animals are in all different places facing different ways. So there's almost a well, a graffiti type of vibe to some (laughs) of it, but it's way more involved in terms of producing. So it's a big mystery what they are to this day. And a, a lot of scholars have looked at it for a long time and had a lot of hypotheses right. most of these are are anywhere from four to six inches deep but they can also be up to six feet wide if you don't include what they call the runways which are even wider and we're, we're going to talk about all of that in a minute but before we go any further for i feel
1: like we should let uh, folks know what our sources are for this uh two-part series Yeah, including but not limited to, we have three major sources for this portion and we'll mention the other ones as we go along. But for this section, a brief mention here of the few main sources we'll be citing from tonight. Right off the bat, we're back once again with two of our favorite and most trusted sources for things archaeological, especially in the South American region, of course, from the Wunderium Courses. So we're back again with Professor Edwin Barnhart, who elucidated us on Pumapunku and Tiwanaku, remember, again from the same lecture series. Lost Worlds of South America. That's a fascinating one. And this one, though, comes from uh, his lecture number eight, The Nazca Lines and Underground Channels. Underground channels figure prominently in one of the major theories. Well, Dr. Barnhart is director of the Maya Exploration Center, and he has over 20 years of experience in North, Central, and South America as an archaeologist, explorer, and instructor. In 1994, Professor Barnhart discovered the ancient city of Moxna, the Spider Monkey House. A major center of classic maya period in northwestern belize that's pretty cool Uh, how how many ancient cities have you discovered recently
0: i'm gonna go with well i mean if you count there was a little (laughs) uh, collection of ants outside my garage
1: not online yes no not in a (laughs) not in a board (laughs) game either right
0: i'm isabella from brazil and when i'm not working on my phd i'm
1: listening to astonishing legends let's get back to the show Well, the other favorite source of ours that uh, we're going to mention here, we've also referenced him heavily in past episodes, is Professor Dr. Eric Klein, a professor of classics and anthropology and the current director of the George Washington University GWU Capital Archaeological Institute Uh, as a National Geographic Explorer, Fulbright Scholar, and NEH Public Scholar. So we're going to talk about his lecture, number 22, The Nazca Lines. Sipan, and Machu Picchu from the series Archaeology, and Introduction to the World's Greatest Sites. And then the third source is actually a really good peer-reviewed book that Tess found for us about the lines in the entire region, including the Inca influence and the Spanish influence called Lines to the Mountain Gods, Nazca and the Mysteries of Peru by Evan Hanningham. So for this section and throughout the episode, we'll be pulling from uh, these professors and experts and this great book as well as other sources. But getting back to descriptions of what we could find on the desert floor there, this comes from Professor Klein's series, in that there's animal and creature and geometric shapes, and they're all over the place, but largely stuff you would find there, but not exactly in that spot. I'll explain that in a little bit, but one geoglyph looks like a dog, could be a cat. It's got a protruding bulbous belly or udder underneath of it. Now, these are stylized images, folks, so keep that in mind. But sometimes, here's the thing. They were accurate with laying them out. They were artistically done. They were done on purpose. There's no mistakes unless they want them to be, and maybe they aren't mistakes. So in this case, this dog or cat-like thing with very long legs extended straight down has a, it's not a tail. It's another thing coming out from the, uh, the rear end of it. And people say like, well, perhaps that is a processional path to get into the shape of the dog, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or you walk the line, because a lot of these are continuous shaped characters in that it's one continuous line that outlines the whole thing. And some of them have eyes or nose features, some of them do not. In this case, though, the dog or cat has very long toes, almost like hands, but they only have three or four digits on them. So I think the number of toes being four max may be significant as we get into the more out there theories on the purpose or symbolism of the characters. They know how many toes are on a dog or cat. It's not three or four. They did this on purpose for a reason. Other things are stylized. Like the monkey has a very long spiral tail. Again, if you talk about some kind of processional pathway, maybe that's important because you end up in the center of it. But again, the monkey has ears but no eyes or nose. The feet have three toes on them. Its right hand, and this is from the POV of the creature, has four digits with a thumb, and its left hand has five digits, including the thumb. Yeah. One figure is known just as the hands. Professor Klein thinks it looks more like a monkey, but an unfinished work, perhaps. Uh, to me, it looks like kind of a bird coming at you in a way, but has giant feet or hands for feet and its right hand or foot on some kind of creature, whatever it is. It looks like an angry bird with giant Yeah, maybe feet. <laughs> it does. Yeah. These are caricatures in a way <laughs> and they're stylized again, but again, they're, they're accurate in the sense that you don't have to guess what they are. Well, some you do because again, they're so stylized that they're almost geometric in that an animal or whatever takes on a geometric shape, like they say with the condor. Now, the wings are not represented as as what you would picture with wings, but they're kind of long, rectangular shapes. So you get the idea, or they did, but they took some artistic liberties for a purpose, I believe. And in this case, with the hands, this character called the hands, its right hand has four digits, while the left hand has five digits, including the thumb. So I think that there is something symbolic about that we don't yet know, but they did it twice on two different animals in the same way. So these people... We're not ignorant of how many toes or fingers these animals had Okay, they, right. they knew exactly what they were doing. They planned these out probably on on paper or reeds or some kind of drawing material and then just scaled it up like we do with blueprints today. You start off with a blueprint. One inch equals 10 feet to make a building. As Professor Barnard says, you, you scale things up. It's not that hard. They probably did the same thing. But just the scale of this is impressive, okay? The spider figure is 150 feet long. One of the legs makes a 90 degree angle going way off to the side or bottom of the main outline. So much of this is open to interpretation nowadays. Yeah. Professor Klein believes that that may represent the spider's silk leading away from the end of the spider. But to me, you can see it's going off of one of the ends of the legs, not the abdomen of the spider. So there's other theories like, why would they do this? Is that just a way to walk into the outline of the spider and then continue on this path? Does that have some meaning? But that's how they're laid out. There's a, all different kinds of things. There's a uh, there's a huge stylized tree with roots. There's another large bird that is known as the heron with a massive zigzagging neck, which is not accurate, but again, it's stylized, and maybe that's a path to lead you on. And we're just talking about the more famous or popular figures and characters here the other one is called the hummingbird with a 300 foot long neck and a beak about the same length as the body that's my favorite that one's a lot of people's favorites for some reason it really resonates with a lot of people just visually there's one called the condor yeah that is always mentioning which is the wings are long rectangular things but you get it right it's not like the other wings that are made on the other geoglyphs there's a parrot which is so abstract uh it doesn't really look like a parrot but I can see kind of the beak and the like the cockatoo top knot on it, right, right. Uh, But it is very uh, abstract in a way. But it does have a feathered crest and abstract long rectangular wings. Now, here's one though that is captured probably the most amount of people's imaginations because of the what you can read into it, and that one is called the Owl Man by scholars and by folks like us or just other people who like uh, to let their imaginations run wild, they call it the astronaut because it is a humanoid shape, but not totally human. It is on the side of a hill, not on the flat, and it's on a hill like the Paracas geoglyphs further to the north. You'll see those started out as more on hillsides, so you can see those from the ground. And maybe that was the purpose. And there's a famous one that's uh, further to the north called the candelabra. This one, though, the owl man, or the astronaut as it's called, is almost 100 feet tall. When you see it, you might recognize that shape as being, uh, you know, one that's bandied about for dramatic purposes, in that the feet on it are not like human feet. They are like cartoonish feet that a kid would draw, or I would draw as a kid. They look like boots. Yeah. Okay. They're big and round and bulbous. The head on this character is like a mushroom. And I think some people say like, oh, it's wide and roundish and oval, like more like an owl, because it has giant round eyes. Yeah. Unlike a human. And then people are thinking, oh, alien. There you go. Ancient alien. It's wearing a helmet. It has giant goggle eyes. It looks like something from Cisco Grove, perhaps. It has no mouth or nose. Again, some figures do have more facial features. Most of them, I think, don't. Here's the other thing about it. It's raising its right hand or arm as if to say hello, either to what's up above in the heavens or something from the heavens saying hello to the peoples. However, other scholarly interpretations might say that, well, he's actually just holding a fishing net, and he's actually, the skirt or uniform of this uh, character is actually a traditional poncho, a line kind of uh, poncho shape, and there's nothing astronomical about it. It's just It's a stylized character of some figure that's part of their creation myth, and that's all there is to it. But that one is, you know, one that gets people going about the whole ancient aliens thing. And then, of course, some of the more scientific hypotheses about the lines include more anthropological answers, such as they had to do with gaining water or praying for water or some kind of ceremonial function for both the Paracas and Nazca cultures. So those are some of the descriptions you get when you watch Professor Klein's lecture on it. Now, switching over to Professor Edwin Barnhart, who talks about the Nazca lines as well, but also a lot more of the culture, and it's more specifically about the Nazca peoples and cultures, and then talking about the lines and what they might mean, to archaeologists. He describes them as being on a high flat plateau between the Nazca and Palpa Valleys, and this is an area going north of south that covers about 50 miles or 80 kilometers. And here's the other thing, because some of these facts are pretty significant to why these lines are still here, where they would not have existed anywhere else in that valley if you put them there. But for some reason, through a, a freak of nature, they're still here for us to enjoy and look at and wonder about. In this area, it rains typically less than 30 minutes a year, sometimes not at all in a whole year. So imagine that. It's one of the driest places on Earth. You get 20 to 30 minutes if it rains that year, and that's it for the whole year. But people live there, so they have to figure out how to get water. And was there more water at some point back in antiquity? Because what we know now is that there are El Nino flood events that do wash away certain areas very suddenly. But these high plateaus don't get washed out. So what we see is in pockets, these lines still exist. Now, Professor Barnhart wonders, were there lines in the lower areas that did get washed out over the centuries? And are they remaining to be discovered? Are they just gone and erased from history? Because what he could see is that when you fly over them, you see some remaining lines that have been kind of faded out. And you'll see lines over other lines or geometric shapes over other shapes. So perhaps the entire valley at one point in antiquity was covered with them. So the other thing that he mentions is that the shapes and figures of the lines vary greatly. Some are geometric shapes like spirals, trapezoids, lines that emanate outward from a central point. Uh, You have animal and insect forms, and then you have your human forms. But all of these, he mentions, we've seen these images and these types of things in pottery and textiles of the Nazca before. These aren't unique to just the desert floor. Right, We're seeing this in their art and again that kind of grounds it like it's maybe not all messages to the heavens that these are just shapes that have a lot of meaning to them but why they did we're going to take a look at and that may not be known so well because here's another weird thing some of these animal forms are unique to the area but for the most part as he says this is just art we've seen in other mediums being transferred then to the desert surface in a much larger scale These aren't unique unto themselves. They are just patterns that we're seeing with this culture that they find valuable. So some of these lines that they create can extend for miles or kilometers. They can go from one end of the valley all the way to the other in these long expanses. And really the most famous forms that uh, people talk about are the animal forms. So we've got monkey images. But we've also seen this, uh, as he says, going back to Corral, another ancient city, There's an orca, which is interesting because the Nazca may be the first people to have an image of an orca or killer whale depicted in art. The hummingbird is perhaps the largest, being about 220 meters across. So again, that's the one that uh, a lot of people identify with, and there are some discrepancies in the measurements, but you get the idea. These things are huge. Now, here's something to keep in mind. Usually you see clean pictures, you know, that have been zoomed in. You get good, sharp images of these Animal and anthropomorphic forms and geometric shapes. And it gives you the impression that these are very organized, very well laid out lines, that there's a cohesive look to them. But he says when you're actually flying over, you see that they're kind of messy. They overlap, they partially overlap, they erase one another in certain areas. They're placed in every which direction, and some of them actually destroy other ones. To him, there's no pattern and there's no order. So some people, suggests that if we could just put all these puzzle pieces together, like it's a big jigsaw puzzle, it all has a meaning. It's all designed to have one singular message, one unified theory of what this all means. And to him, he's saying, I don't really see that. It seems completely disorganized. In that over 900 years, people were just doing whatever they did. You know, They, they didn't have a plan like, you know, for the next 200 years, please keep doing this. And make sure you don't run over the other lines. As we've seen, that's what humans do. It's like, oh, that old thing. It's like Gobekli Tepe. There are a lot of connections, or a few, I've seen to that old site, not just the skull veneration and the heads. That oldest ceremonial chamber was filled in. And over the time, the whole thing was filled in by people. So they had a reason for doing that. It wasn't just dumping their trash there, you know? So people through the generations have different ideas of what should be done with them. And uh, thankfully, they're still here. You know, that point of view about it being a
0: disparate mishmash or whatever, That you know, I'm kind of yeah. aligned with that, but not because I'm educated about it. It's, <laughs> right. It's just sort of what it feels like. And I, of course, I can't think of an example right now, but I think there's plenty of examples in history where something mm-hmm. seems chaotic, and then when you understand it, it all snaps into place. So... I think the thing to remember here, with all due respect to Professors Klein and Barnhart and every other researcher we're going to talk about, is that nobody knows. We still don't, nobody really knows. Is it chaos uh, or is it exactly (laughs) the way they meant it to be? And for a specific reason, nobody knows.
1: Oh, they say that themselves. Uh, And I want everybody to keep that in mind, ourselves included, is that they make it a point to say, you have to be careful in assigning meaning when we don't really have any evidence for it. There are things that make more sense than others, certainly. But be careful just saying like, oh, this is how they did it. This is why they did it. And that's part of the reason,
0: you know, just going back to what our opening quote was from Maria Rieke, theories mm-hmm. are all imagination.
1: Yeah, I that's, agree with that. That's
0: what she starts out with. And they are, uh, which is, I guess, makes our entire show imagination. But
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, a little less than that,
0: even. OK, so let's start out with a timeline here to paint a broad picture of the chain of events that brought the Nazca lines back to the forefront of the zeitgeist. And I haven't been able to use the word zeitgeist in a while. I (laughs) you wanted to so much. Yeah, I I had to get it in the show. Everything's connected zeitgeist, if you believe any of this at all. They were originally created a long time ago, but they went unnoticed for generations. And like a lot of things of this scale, they were on a scale so large, you didn't even realize what you were looking at as an individual. Until you get the the 10,000-foot view of them from mm. above, figuratively, I suppose. It, maybe even <laughs> literally. I don't know. It'd be, yeah. Forrest, maybe you can tell. How high up do you have to get to understand these?
1: As uh, some people have noted, uh, you don't even need to be that high to get a good view of them. Uh, just at a little over 1,500 feet or, or 500 meters, you get a good idea of their massive scale at this point. And they yeah. can be seen from some of the surrounding foothills and vantage points. So, again, it's not like they're totally unseen from the ground you can get a a glimpse of some of them. On the ground, you just might think that they're old trails or roads and they don't look like much or anything significant other than, well, somebody did this. It could be a long time ago. could be just a hundred years ago. You don't know. But speaking quickly on modern day peoples, not realizing or caring what the ancient ancestors before them did on the land they now occupy. Professor Barnhart mentions that at least 10 years ago from today. So that would be uh, like around 2012, I think he's noticed that there's been a bit of a population boom from people coming down into the Nazca Valley from the mountains and kind of squatting in the area. Most of these folks have constructed small, about 10 foot by 10 foot square huts made from uh, weed grasses and reeds, and they're just trying to eke out a survival, planting gardens and, and keeping animals. Uh, so that's interesting is that they're reusing this valley once again, coming down from out of the mountains. Unfortunately, with some of their, their pigs and human activity, It's done a bit of damage to the area, like with a Nazca burial site and some of the ancient Nazca era aquifer water sources that are still being used today, but they're drying up because these folks are moving in and and using them. And it it can't support that many people in this ancient site. So, you know, that's the regional local people. They're coming in and using the area, but maybe not caring as much, I would say, as the scientists that are trying to preserve it. Because, again, to their point of view, they just need to get by. They need to survive somehow. And uh, they're using the valley and they're planting crops and making a a living, as their ancestors did, out of the the dry dirt. So that's uh, hats off to them. But then again, we'd like to have it preserved, right, for future generations. And then, ironically, talking about people not from the region, in December of 2014, some Greenpeace activists set up a banner inside or aside, actually it's not, it wasn't inside, but it was right next to one of the most famous geoglyphs called the Hummingbird, which we mentioned. Yeah. With a banner that read, time for change, the future is renewable, dash ring piece. And yes, they damaged the site for which they were heavily criticized. So that seems a little ironic to me. And then the area just outside of the World Heritage Boundaries has also received some damage from the famous Dakar Rally. So just goes to show you, doesn't matter what era or culture, some folks just don't care about ancient old timey stuff when they have other agendas. Probably a lot of subsequent people didn't know or didn't care or didn't say anything. And it's the same wherever you go.
0: Yeah, that's right. When you come to this ancient stuff, some people are like, ah, what, well, you know, it's I can't <laughs> remember, there's so many stories I've read about like folks in homes in Italy or in these regions where people have been living for thousands of years yeah. and they're like they, they go down in their basement where they're they're keeping some wines on a shelf and it's part of an old palazzo that was just, yeah. like, oh, historic. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, well, this shelf was here. Yeah. It's been here for 4,000 years, you know? Yeah. so that's. And they're just like, well, yeah, this is my basement. I got to eat. I got to live. People have
1: always it's, done that. They've, they've always used spolia the ruins of classical architecture to rebuild and rebuild again. And it is a little like Obekli Tepe. That farmer I think was scraping the tops of the, uh, what he thought were gravestones with his plow. And then he notified somebody else. They, they did a little deeper digging. And I think at first the archaeological team, I think from UCLA, if I remember the story correctly, like they also thought they were headstones and not that old. So they didn't really care about them. And it, it took a while for people to realize, no, this is the oldest thing modern humans have found ever. Yeah. And there's <laughs> a lot of other things still buried below the surface that we even got to. So uh, with what we're looking at, there may be other geoglyphs that have yet to be discovered and maybe other artifacts, but we're only dealing with what we know now, which I think is the safe, logical approach. Well, coming
0: back around to people that actually do care about this stuff, there right. there were some folks that did say something. They wrote it down. They wrote yeah. down what they were seeing and what what they thought was important. And And from that, we can say for sure... When the Nazca Lines started to get noticed again after being in relative obscurity for uh, decades, if not even centuries.
1: Absolutely. But let's first talk about where they're located so people get an idea of the general geographic location. Oh, yes. We buried
0: the lead. We buried the (laughs) geographical
1: lead. Well, I think you kind of have an idea here in that uh, I think we're only 431 miles northwest of Tiwanaku, that's right. that we talked that's about right. before. So it's different in, in so many ways, and of course, different eras, but uh, there are striking similarities between the two. Of course, in the ancient world, that's a lot further than it is now in your car or a plane. But we're kind of in the general area here. So once again, we find ourselves in Peru, which is a wondrous land of mystery and rich culture, a country located in the western side of South America. It is bordered to the north by Ecuador and Colombia and to the east by Brazil and to the southeast by Bolivia and then to the south by Chile. It was home to ancient Incan, Huari, Caracas, and Chavin civilizations who were among the first to inhabit the region, leaving behind monuments such as the famed Machu Picchu, Now, that one we've all uh, probably heard of, uh, which we talked about also back in February of uh, 2022 in our series Puma Punku. So again, yeah, we saw a lot of similarities of culture and echoes, I would say, between the two, if not outright connections. Historians believe Peru has been home to cultures since before 2000
0: BC, Mm -hmm. beginning with hunter gatherers. We we talked about this with the Puma Punku series, which eventually evolved into more sophisticated civilizations such as Chavin, Moche, Chimu, and Inca. And again, we discussed the Chavin extensively when we were covering Tiwanaku and Lake Titicaca and Pumapunku and all that kind of stuff on those earlier
1: episodes. Yeah, you can draw a through line of different eras and cultures kind of blending in, being distinct, but also blending in with one another uh, throughout the ages here. Uh, One thing I want to bring up quickly, though, about just how significant some of these finds have been in this area that many people may not know of, even if you're into, uh, you know, just reading casual articles. The Moche were another culture contemporary with the Nazca, and they also worship a god nowadays known as the Fang deity. Yeah. Which is, yeah, pretty scary looking, but like I said, even though they're a different culture, they had a similar god that they worshiped. And this comes up again, and again, when it comes to the region's ancient art and symbols. And another thing that they shared here is Severed heads, lots of severed heads. Yeah, that continues on through these cultures what they found important, what they like to do, what they put into their art. So, as Dr. Klein says, in 1987, there was a huge discovery. This was a discovery of a royal tomb that dates to about 250 current era, and it was found in the area of Sipan in northern Peru. This is the Moche area, the Moche culture flourished there from about 100 to about 800 current era. The tomb that was excavated, uh, was that was done by Peruvian archaeologist named Walter Alva. Now, this tomb is considered one, if not one of the richest finds in the Americas in terms of gold, silver, priceless artifacts, and it's often referred to as the King Tut Tomb of the Americas. That's how significant this was, and I wasn't all that familiar with it until we started diving into this. It's like, yeah, this is as big as far as artifacts that are priceless being found in one tomb location as King Tut. Uh,
0: Especially after the conquistadors and everyone else came through looking really hard for stuff (laughs) just like that. They missed the
1: boat. Well, that's another thing, too, is that you have other indigenous peoples of the area also grave robbing like everywhere else. And there's one mound that where it had been carved away so much by grave robbers that you can't even tell that it was a pyramid at one point. It just looks like a mound that they've scraped it away. And sometimes they miss stuff. So in this case, fortunately, they did miss it. And it's uh, for everyone in the area and the rest of the world to enjoy and wonder about. Well, here's another thing to your point earlier. Some scholars believe that the migration into the Americas was first not in the North, but in South America. And then we've received emails about like, no, 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 it was the coastal migration theory. No, 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 it was the land bridge. Yes. Jury's still out. Let's just say that. We're not (laughs) ascribing to any one of those, but that is uh, something that people believe is that that's where it, it started and then spread north.
0: Another thing, too. I'm, again, connecting back to uh, Puma Punku, I don't know if folks remember, but when we, when for folks that heard our series on Pumapunku, right. we were talking about uh, Bolivia's Fiesta de las Nititas. That's uh, right. And yeah. the Memento Mori, and so you can see how this idea of these being revered things has yeah. has come down through the years, even to this day, with these festivals and the honor with the heads and that sort of thing. So it's very fascinating.
1: Much, much older. Like I said, the connection to Gobekli Tepe yep. with skull veneration. And that's, that's right. you couldn't take a Polaroid of your ancestors after they passed away. So what you did is you kept their skull and you, yeah. you could put clay around it and little seashells for eyes and decorated them and put it on the mantle. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sounding facetious, but that's what folks did to remember ancestors in a way. But it is a veneration of the melon on your shoulders yeah. And in this case, though, there's different reasons that we're going to look at later when we get to the culture of the Nazca, because it, it features very prominently. And as we've said, it continues on to this day. Some things you don't get uh, rid of. as Some of the shaman of the area still continue some of the practices that uh, we've seen in the different areas here. So another fascinating aspect, though, is that these cultures all had incredibly sophisticated engineers. Uh, again, as we've seen from Machu Picchu to Tiwanaku, in neighboring Bolivia, and now tonight in the Peruvian coastal plain. Now, we've debated the origins, the use, and the construction methods on the show in the past, and to this day, a great deal of them are still a mystery to the best scientists and archaeologists doing research on them. And I want to make a point here it's something I think we should all keep in mind about the question, how did these ancient ancestors accomplish these wonders? Well, the more we hear from the most notable archaeologists and researchers about all of these mysterious ancient sites and how they were made, the answer of how, with regards to the more sophisticated stone masonry, engineering, and construction, well, by most scholars' view, it seems, it isn't by anachronistic, otherworldly tech. (laughs) It is not something otherworldly, nor is it Occam's razor of only simple methods with simple tools. Because the correct answer for them is to your point earlier, Scott, we still don't know. Yeah. That is the answer. Is like they're not going to come out and say like, oh, well, it's simple uh, how they did it and this is the reason. I think the correct, respectful, and accurate answer is we really don't know still. So the other
0: thing that we've discovered as we've been looking at these things over the years and the, the different, uh, especially early early human cultures, is that if there's a gap in the successful populations, then knowledge gets lost. It's hard to know what's going on here. Now, I'm not sitting here proposing the alien theory over any other theory. I'm just saying When you get into a debate about what it is, uh, nobody's more right or wrong when there's no answer available.
1: Yes, that's a good point. And I know it's human tendency, logically, to say, like, well, it's the most simple thing, got the most complicated things done, because that's what we can uh, point to, and it's easy. Well, these aren't very complicated dwellings that we can explore nowadays, because Nazca villages, they seem to be very small villages, mainly consisting of these Small pit houses, and then they would have perishable roofs made out of uh, grasses and reeds on top. So, Professor Barnard uh, says that today, you know, that's a little like what people are doing nowadays with their 10 foot by 10 foot reed mat sided huts. But what he also says is the question what are we missing from the archaeological record? Because we can excavate these now ancient pit houses, but they might have also lived in just these reed square square pots right. where all the sides are perishable. So the other thing is that these things are not very sturdy. One good win as they get uh, on the plains there in the Pampas, could blow these away. So the question is, and this is, to, again, to keep this in mind, is that the stuff that's perishable, like it goes away after 100 or 200 years, and they're now vanished. Well, this could really affect the artifact record of the area. You know what I'm saying? Something that's missing yes. now steers the narrative of what went on in these ancient times. Different from what really happened. Because right. now we're going off and making assumptions on things we didn't know existed then because they're just gone. Again, getting back to like Obeckley Tepe, is that we only have rocks now. We don't know the soft goods that they had. We can make assumptions and some things are left behind. And in this case, uh, we have a few of those things. There were some wooden stakes that have been carbon dated uh, with carbon 14 dating process that were found inside the lines that give us a date. And other things like pottery shards, but but you know what Von Daniken says about those stakes, right? Uh, well, shall we say that now, or do you? <laughs>
0: you wanna well, get I don't into know. This? It just—it's one of those yeah. things. Like, okay. well, there's no way anybody could have come along and put those stakes there way after the lines were made.
1: <laughs> you oh know? well, there, yeah. Okay. I mean,
0: it's a valid point. Right. It's a valid point.
1: Well, to sum up how we should think about the Nazca Lines, I think this is all very important as we form our own ideas as armchair archaeologists and concerned citizens like yourself and myself, is to keep these things in mind. Because, again, people, you can go off the rails wanting to have fantastical thoughts of what may have happened with very little evidence. So now, however, when it comes to the how and the why, when it came to making these lines, the answer is actually pretty simple. And it seems we do know how. The why is another matter altogether.
0: Hi, I'm Elizabeth, and when I'm not raising creepy twins of my own, I'm
1: listening to Astonishing
0: Legends. Girls, stop levitating. We've talked about this.
1: <sighs> Let's get back to the show.
0: Right, so coming back around to what we said earlier, the Nazca lines are both too expansive to comprehend from ground level and too early in history to say, oh, these were discovered by this one person. Tons of people must have seen them throughout history. But they most likely, barring oral history, which may have been lost with the Nazca culture, had no
1: idea what they were looking at, especially at ground level. Right, and it's been said by some scholars that it was the practice of the Inca culture way after them, To erase the records of any kind of the previous cultures, because of course, everyone's only mostly interested in their own culture at the time. And then the Spanish did it when they when they came in, they there was also their practice to like, let's just kind of shove this aside. So again, a lot of knowledge may have been lost if there was any record keeping at all, which you don't know if there were or not. So in this case, Scott, the path to understanding what they were up to here kind of starts off very quietly,
0: right? That's right. The first time that we know of in which they turned up in a book was in 1553 in a book by Spanish conquistador, who we mentioned earlier, Mm. Pedro Cieza de Leon, uh, who thought that they might be trail markers. And he said so in his book, Cronicas del Peru. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. That's not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That book was actually published in four parts, three of them uh, posthumously for him, but in the first part, he mentioned that. We had also talked about him earlier in our series on Mm Pumapunku. Cieza de Leon was a trained observer, and even though he was paid to document the Spanish conquest of Peru, his work is so detailed that it is considered invaluable as a historical
1: resource in spite of it being done in the name of colonization. Indeed. And then we have Spanish administrative officer, or corregidor, Luis Marjean, records seeing ancient, what he called, roads back in 1586. And those are believed to have been the Nazca lines, which he was actually seeing. And he wrote about it in the book, and please pardon my asunto; it's going to be rusty, Relaciones Geográficas de Indias, or Geographical Relations of the Indies. In this same passage, he mentions that the locals told him of the Vircochas, who came to the land in ancient pre-Incan times, if you were paying attention when we were covering Pumapunku, you might remember Scan and I talking about Viracocha, the sun god, and his relationship to Lake Titicaca, just a short distance from Pumapunku. Sarah, will you please roll that clip from the mystery of Pumapunku Part 2? According to Incan lore, Isla del Sol, Island of the Sun, is both the birthplace of
0: their revered sun god and the world's first two Incas. Hmm. Story has it that following a great flood, the province of Lake Titicaca was plunged into a long period of darkness. After many days, the bearded god Viracocha arose from the depths of Lake Titicaca, traveling to Isla del Sol, where he not only commanded the sun to rise, but created the world's first two Incas. Uh, People of Bolivia, please forgive me if I mess these names up. Manco
1: Capac and Mama Occhio, the Adam and Eve of the Andes. So there you have it. Everything is connected. And that's some real Graham Hancock stuff right there. <laughs> a shameless plug for that fun series. Uh, but then again, myths and legends are my jam. And like Graham says, maybe we should pay more attention to the indigenous legends to gain some understanding and respect, you know, broaden our horizons. And here's a little more about that legend. Apparently, when Monzon asked the locals about them, like, where do they come from? What are they for? He's told by these people, and again, this is the uh, mid-sixteenth century. He's told that the legend is in very old times, ancient times. The Nazcans were visited by a people they called the Viracochas. They referred to these people as being saintly. They were saintly people, maybe like holy people to them. And then they told him, Manzan, that the paths are built for them. There you go. So. That's for their arrival. That is part of the legend. It wasn't for anything else. It's like, it's for the arrival of the Viracochas. And that's another interesting thing to me. It's a singular or plural Viracocha. So it's the Nazcan god, Viracocha. We talked about it in Pumapunku, same area, same rough time zone (laughs) or time period, you could say. Some sources report this deity dating back to about 3000 BCE. And legend says where did this guy come from or where do these people come from well some sources place the date of the Viracocha legend going all the way back to about 3000 BCE and the legend has it that he arrived from the sky in a golden boat and some versions of the legend even have it as coming from the other side of the milky way how he's depicted in these legends is that he has a cone-shaped skull and only four digits on his hands and feet so that makes me wonder mm-hmm. when we see the geoglyphs and you know we know that you know, a dog has the four toes with a dew claw, a monkey has five digits like a person but you're only showing three on one hand four in the other or some short number of them when you're already out there making the lines it's not like you're trying to cut corners you did it for a purpose is that some call to something that is uh more spiritual more religious more about the legends of origin and creation and these Viracocha. So again, with Graham Hancock, he makes a connection to a lot of ancient myths from around the globe, having to do with a learned being arriving by water or the sky on a vessel who have come to train survivors of the ways that were supposedly lost.
0: There you go. Yeah,
1: I love the stuff. I know it's way out there, but is that where the answer lies?
0: This is cultural history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can't just be like, oh, that's poppycock. Right. Uh, If we start doing that, we're going to have to throw out a lot of cultural history, (laughs) including much more prominent ones. So,
1: Well, uh, yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, No, the idea is that uh, they should be kept alive. We said this before. Yeah, you can kind of snicker at these. But when you ask the people who are still there, where do these things come from? They will tell you from Yvette coaches, from the sky people, wherever they are, the different origins that they have. And I believe, uh, why not respect them? It's like that amazing scene
0: in Close Encounters when they go and to and ask oh, them where <laughs> where it came from and all those thousands of people yeah. just point at the sky. Right,
1: guy. right. Yeah. In any case, in spite of these mentions of the Nazca lines uh, way back when in the 16th century in all their various forms, you can tell uh, from the mentions that occur with Leon and Monzon they didn't really understand what they were seeing, right? They didn't see the big picture, literally. So one of the first names you hear associated with the Nazca lines in uh, modern times here, in the first half of the 20th century, is Manuel Toribio Mejia Cespe. Now, he was a student of a man known as the father of Peruvian archaeology, Dr. Julio César Teyo, and that's T-E-L-L-O. So in uh, in Spanish, you would uh, pronounce it as Y. Uh, sound yes. and he was an archaeologist known for most of the major discoveries relating to the Paracas culture and his extensive investigations of Chavín de Huántar, and uh, that's another Peruvian UNESCO World Heritage site that is five thousand years old. He studied trepanation intent—that is, uh, drilling holes in one's skulls for various purposes—and uh, mm-hmm. hint, hint, check out the Frankish kings, and the Merovingians, etc. And also, he studied the elongation of skulls, which we'll be talking about. But he was famous for discovering 429 mummy bundles in 1927 on the Paracas Peninsula. Now, Dr. Teyo very much believed that the Andean cultures developed in situ, or where they have been discovered, as opposed to migrating from somewhere else. And of course, not all of his colleagues agreed. All right, I lied. I I can't wait. I got to mention a little side note about (laughs) elongated skulls because I'm afraid if I don't, we'll forget to. And they're just too weirdly cool not to stick a footnote in here. So uh, a little bit about uh, Nazca elongated skulls. The Nazca, like the Paracas peoples before them, also practice skull deformation with elongated skulls. And you can see them in their burials. Now, we're going back to Dr. Barnhart's lecture here because he describes them very well, and he's seen them. So with his research and others, they know that there were many, many elongated skulls found. And he wonders, as I did after he mentioned it, because I didn't really think about it, how do these people function when the back of your skull is now a foot longer because it's been bound up as you were growing up? Did it give you brain damage? Were there any physical side effects of people back then? And why would you do that? I mean, I you know, people do all kinds of strange body modifications, but that one's very specific for the area. So it started with the paracas, as they seen. And of course, that could be another hot button issue. The paracas elongated skulls, where they're all human, set that aside for the moment. Well, also found with this elongation of the skulls was cranial trepanation found with some of the skulls. And that was a common practice with the Nazca. So what that is, of course, is drilling uh, big holes, maybe about the size of a golf ball or quarter or or different sizes here. It's essentially ancient surgery, opening up a living person's skull while they're alive and and slapping the skin back together. Some of these skulls showed healing with the holes, like it'd been done and a a few years later or whatever, or sometime after they were starting to heal. And then some skulls had more than one hole. So it was done several times. Now, as the professor says, it could have been done medically, in their view, as we understand it nowadays, right? They had some reason for doing this medically. But to him, more likely, this was a religious practice. And we've talked about this before. Think about it. If the person's acting irrational, they have a mental illness issue, they think this person is uh, insane. Uh, They're being hurt from the inside by something unseen. And maybe that thing is in their head. So you open up the skull to try and get it out of there. It's basically trying to end a spiritual attack through trepanation. Let the bad thing out and let it escape the skull.
0: Yeah. And they had all kinds of effective anesthetics back then, right?
1: Well, we're getting to that procedure. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, some of the things that they were farming back then would... Uh, yeah. They did affect your Kept head, crying. but in a different way. I'm not sure if they yeah. were, uh, you know, pain killing or not, but yeah, it's probably not a good idea to combine the two. But I've mentioned this in the past, and it's just fun to repeat. This is one of the more out there theories I've heard about trepanation is that one of the ancient Egyptian practices was to use trepanation in conjunction with a long needle of sorts, and that would be inserted into your brain to stimulate perhaps the pesky old pineal gland, that pine cone-shaped bulb that sparks so much controversy for some because somehow it grants you a uh, slightly, uh, let's say, superhuman mental capacity. And then with the legends of the Frankish kings, their skulls were found with trepanation, and they also, according to legend, had supposedly advanced mental acuity and abilities. Who knows? Well, <laughs> now back to our regularly scheduled programming. So getting back to uh, Dr. Tello, uh, his student and protege, Toribio Mejia Sespe, who in the same year as Dr. Tello, discovered the mummy bundles. Well, he was hiking in this area. And again, uh, this is 1927. And when he comes across the remnants of the lines and after climbing up to a higher uh, ground advantage point, he starts seeing these long straight lines stretching up below him. And he immediately said, this has got to be studied. These aren't just old roads. There's something going on here. He understood that this is something significant. These need to be studied. So like Cieza de Leon and Marjan, he thought they were just likely ancient roads to begin with. So he started working on it for some time. And then uh, a, a little bit later, he published an essay titled Aqueductos y Caminos Antiguos de la Oya de Rio Grande de Nazca. And that means the, uh, the Aqueducts and Ancient Roads of the Rio Grande Valley in Nazca. And this wasn't published until 1939. So it was 1927 to 1939 that he's gathering information. And his findings appeared in 1939 in the Proceedings and Scientific Works of the 27th International Congress of American Anthropologists. So finally now they're getting some, you could say, more modern 20th century attention. But still, the first major understanding of what the Nazca lines really were didn't come until Peruvian and civilian airline pilots started routinely flying over them, because now people are seeing them still. uh, They are best seen from the air.
0: So now we're coming into more modern times. On June 21st of 1941, an important day, Dr. Paul Koshok, an American historian, was in Peru studying the ancient irrigation systems employed there. And he took to the skies in a hired airplane, to look for the location of some specific canals that he believed must be present below him. Now, this was his life's work. This was his focus, these canals and irrigation yeah. systems. Now, according to Eric von Daniken in his book, Arrival of the Gods, Koschak had known about strange straight lines on the desert floor for a couple of years. But during a flight over Nazca that day, he made the remarkable discovery that something more was going on when he noticed a giant figure that was the shape of a bird. He knew immediately that the bird was not part of the irrigation system. So he's asking the pilot to fly around some more, and he eventually saw a spiral, another giant bird, a monkey, and on a cliff face, the 100 foot tall humanoid figure that we mentioned earlier, the owl man. Now, according to discoverperu.org, he also noticed that some of the long parallel lines on the plane were converging perfectly with the sunset. Well, June 21st, 1941, was the winter solstice. That's the day he was up in the air. And he felt certain at that point that the lines must be some kind of astronomical calendar of some kind.
1: Mystery solved. (laughs) Not so fast. We'll circle back. Well, no, it's a good idea. One that I personally like. (laughs) Yeah. But does it solve any puzzles or answer any questions or most of them? Well, we'll see. Yes. Well, concurrent with Dr. Koshok's presence in Peru, German
0: mathematician and geographer. Maria Ryka moved there in 1932 to work as a school teacher. Now, eventually she became a research assistant to Dr. Koschak, and they would become colleagues after Dr. Koschak enlisted her to continue researching the lines, even though his time in Nazca had come to a close. Now, Dr. Rica had been educated at Hamburg University and the Dresden Institute of Technology and received an honorary doctorate from the National University of San Marcos. During her time in Peru, she developed an intense interest in the Nazca lines, and she would ultimately dedicate her life to the study of them. She worked closely with Koschak as well
1: as archaeologist Richard P. Scheidel. Yeah, her groundbreaking research you know, began in the 1940s when, uh, like Koschak, she proposed the theory that these ancient geoglyphs were part of some kind of astronomical calendar in some way. So over the following decades, Dr. Rika took a single room at the Hacienda San Pablo, and Dr. Rika worked tirelessly there for years, and she became eventually known as the Lady of the Lines, or, or Saint Maria amongst the locals, because they respected her reverence for their culture and what, you know, the treasures that they found there. And she also discovered that there were lines converging on the summer solstice as well during her research. So She's starting to put together her puzzle pieces here, and given that Koshak had seen some converging on the winter solstice himself, she then found some converging on the summer solstice, and she became convinced that the whole thing was a large-scale celestial calendar.
0: Yeah, so in 1946, she began creating maps of the animals and the other figures on the Nazca Plane, and found that there were 18 different types of animals and birds. I seem to remember that Von Daniken pointed out in his book, and birds, however, were the most prevalent animals Mm -hmm. depicted. They outnumber everything else. Eventually, she convinced the Peruvian Air Force to assist her with aerial photographic surveys of the area. When the Pan American Highway wound up cutting through, she worked hard to educate the local government and officials about the importance of protecting the region. Now, Koshak left Peru in 1948, but Rika stayed behind. She spent hours out on the dusty desert mm-hmm. plains, sometimes driving to <laughs> new locations in her 15-window Volkswagen Microbus, with an image of what we've referred to a few times now, the Nazca Hummingbird painted on its side. She studied the intricate markings and measured each line with great precision, all while living in extremely harsh conditions. She published a book on her theories of it all being a large astronomical calendar. And then she used all the profits from the book to hire private security
1: to keep the public from damaging the lines. She proved herself to be an indefatigable researcher. And it's safe to say that even though her primary theory about them being an astronomical calendar has not stood the test of time, at least for all of them, let's say. Perhaps they were for some of them. But for the grand unifying theory of the geoglyphs, it is safe to say that her work is the bedrock of everything we know about them today, as far as the data, the the calculations, the measurements of them, which she figured is most important to start with any kind of theory. But you also know what we found so fascinating about her trip is that like for a lot of people that devote their lifetimes to studying these types of things, this was also a spiritual journey for her. She gave a lecture in the 1980s that exotic travel coordinator and blogger Kathy Dore transcribed, and and in this lecture, she said the following, quote, When I first came to Peru by sea, the ship went passing through the center of four consecutive rainbows, four arcs, one inside the other. It was a marvelous spectacle. It must have been some kind of prediction or something. Imagine a boat, a boat driving through the open sea, passing through arching rainbows that touch the waves. End quote. So, this had a profound impact on her and maybe was a prediction on the rest of her life and career and her passion. And it also makes me think, in some marvelous and metaphysical connection, that in a metaphorical way, maybe she was like Viracocha or the Viracochas arriving by sea in a boat to impart understanding and appreciation of the lost ways. Maybe the locals saw her that way too. I was most moved by reading about her work there. Yeah.
0: She was, so far, been one of the most compelling figures involved in the research. I really think she was a steward of the lines, regardless of whether or not her overarching hypothesis is still in consideration today. And frankly, having done all the research we've done, I'm not ready to throw out the speculation that both she and Dr. Koschak had, regardless of the uh, computer analysis which came later and says, "Oh, we don't right. know the celestial." There's, I have some thoughts on that, but that's for conclusions, which is a part part two
1: situation, I guess. You know, that's my old chestnut saying: not everything's mutually exclusive. Is that it could be a little bit of column A, it could be a little bit of column B, right? And maybe some of these were that, but people want the whole answer. Like, what does it all mean, right? You know? As we plow along here, like I said, it's almost irrelevant that her mission in her life was to bring attention, chart, measure, record these things for posterity, and preserve them. And that's what she did. Yeah, that's and, right. And she's beloved by the locals. There are some videos of her that uh, we'll post in the, in the links. Where you can see them wheeling her out and she's very old at this point but she's like a rock star to them yeah <laughs> not to i guess that is rocks but yes it literally she's liter- literally literally yeah. rock she is literally a rock star but uh <laughs> no they they love somebody who who adopted this place as her own and and wanted to help them preserve their culture so there you go
0: you know like we said she was convinced that most of the lines on the plane were some sort of celestial or astronomical map that helped the Nazca culture to know when the weather might be changing or when the aqueducts would be full of water, which in turn would help them to be better farmers. But what she found to be super unique was that whatever technology was employed when they were created, it made the lines essentially permanent. Listen to this quote from that same lecture we just referenced. Quote, there are extremely strong winds here, even sandstorms, but the sand never deposits over the drawings. On the contrary, The wind has a cleansing effect, taking away all the loose material. This Mm -hmm. way, the drawings were preserved for thousands of
1: years, end quote. Yeah, it really is a weird quirk of nature. It's a fluke that these things have not been destroyed, because things like, as we just said earlier, get destroyed by El Niño-type conditions, strong winds, uh, human activity, and for some reason, these are still there. Like, it's almost a miracle. Well, she goes on to point out something that every listener should also consider as we talk about this legend is that, yeah, there's almost no rain in Nazca. As we said, it's one of the driest places on Earth. It might get 20 to 30 minutes of rain uh, once a year or once every two years. People still live there. But Dr. Rica states that it's even drier than the Sahara Desert. And she adds in this lecture that there are more drawings near the valleys because that's where the people lived. There's no evidence of anyone living on the plane. Now, I'll just make a side note here. That might be significant for those of you with more fantastical uh, imagination (laughs) is that why those are different and protected. Well, however, there are some though that are like the Owlman, as we mentioned earlier, also known as the Astronaut, which are carved into the side of a cliff or hill. As we said earlier, also the Paracas geoglyphs, those are usually starting off as uh, being on the side of the hill. So people from the ground could see them and it was more prominent, but also any sky beings could also see them. And speaking of the astronaut or owl man, I I think there's another name for it. It escapes my memory at the moment, but I think maybe some have called him the priest because with their art, you do see a lot of, priests of different forms, jaguar priests, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll have be holding a little tiny severed head yeah, as a trophy heads were, were big then. But in this case, though, it does not look like a priest to me. It's a being with an A-line dress kind of a thing and a mushroom head with big round eyes. And is that like the Australian rock paintings? Well, I'll let you make that connection. But there are many places here where it would have taken people hours to get to some of these places to make these carvings. Now, that's what I like about this idea is that the technical aspect is not complicated at all. You just scrape away the dirt. You can do that with a, a large group of people probably in a few hours and get a lot done, or at least over several days. Uh, certainly, to my view, much more difficult to make a crop circle. Right. That is a very elaborate. This is, you just scrape the rocks away. So the... How is not a big mystery. The why is. Well, the upscaling, though, is still a little bit of a mystery. No, no, that, that's planning, right. Yeah. So so you, if, like I said, it's not hard, but you do have to do some uh, surveying. Yeah. You have to lay out sight lines with cord or rope and make sure you're roughly doing it the same thing. Otherwise, it's goofed up and then, like... You ruined one, yeah. and it's like you gotta, uh, you know, what I'm saying, like, oh man, we gotta start over. And it's like I said, to make corrections, you would have to put the dark rocks back over it, right? And maybe you've mixed it up so much, like it wouldn't. Uh, it, it's it like would it's, it's like you screwing, it. up a, yeah, you're screwing up a, yeah, you screwing up a line drawing with pen too. and ink because yeah, it's a single gotta,
0: line. That's the other. thing. That's right. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Most of them are right. So you have a single line that they're trying to achieve, and uh, who knows? But then again, as we said earlier, some seem to be pretty willy nilly. Some yeah. were. Uh, cross over each other, some destroy other older ones.
0: Well, another astonishing fact that Dr. Rika mentions is that she's aware of at least two lines that are nine kilometers in length. This was, she mentioned this in the 80s. I'm sure that all of this is thoroughly cataloged now. That's over five and a half miles. And she posited that the local people were able to do this because they had almost a kind of telescopic eyesight, that they could see very small things that were incredibly far away. Uh, she actually took one local to an ophthalmologist to examine his eyes, and the eye chart did not have text on it small enough to ascertain any loss of vision for him. In other words, there was nothing so small on the chart that he couldn't read it. When Dr. Rika points out this same person could also draw incredibly tiny images hyper-accurately. <laughs> so she thought maybe that might lead into like how some of the planning uh, and right. that genetically they had a predisposition to being able to execute that work which then of course right. you start to wonder like wh- how, why did that happen and the next thing i thought yeah. of is maybe the reason the owl man has such big eyes was because all of those folks had such amazing eyesight
1: yes it could very well be symbolic no that's yeah. a good point too is that often uh, people make will leap to a conclusion of like well that's what something actually looks like when really it's a symbolic exaggeration of something they found important right But then that leads to a lot of arguments, so I'm not going to get in the middle of that. But you're right. It's it's a fascinating thing that there is a physical aspect to the way and ease with which they made the geoglyphs, where other peoples may have had uh, more difficulty or weren't able to make things quite as large. Indeed, You need the will, because this took a lot of coordinated effort, no matter how simple it was to achieve the technique and the effect. And you also have the availability of a large canvas for these people. So all these things coming together aided in their creation. Well, we've spent some time now on Dr. Raika because it's clear that she was really one of the most pivotal figures involved in researching the Nazca lines in the 20th century. And she was more than just a researcher, really. She became a custodian of them. She documented them. She mapped them. And she ultimately protected them from destruction by people who... Really didn't truly understand their significance or didn't care. Like I said earlier, they got other things to worry about. All that time in the sun, though, and the dry desert air took a toll on her health, however, and she was eventually confined to a wheelchair. But even in this state, if she saw tourists traipsing around on the dunes looking like they were going to mess something up, she would chase them off in her wheelchair. So, again, she was very passionate about it. And Peru considered her a national treasure, and she became a Peruvian citizen in 1994. And four years later, she would succumb to cancer and Parkinson's disease. She was buried with official state honors at Hacienda San Pablo, where she lived and worked for so many years. And it is now the Museo Maria Reica, a museum dedicated to the lines and her life's work. In
0: 1995, Dr. Reica helped establish a successful campaign for UNESCO World Heritage Site status for the Nazca Lines, a fitting tribute for somebody who had devoted so much of their life to its preservation. Hey, I'm Nate, and when I'm not looking up how to pronounce perpetuity, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: Well, as we start to wrap up part one here, I think it's fitting to now take a moment to talk about the culture of the Nazca people and the cultures nearby, the cultures that preceded them. And I think it's important to try and understand as much as we can about the Nazca people, because these lines don't just exist on their own. They didn't just appear. They're tied to the people themselves. And so if we can get a better understanding of the Nazca culture, and again, there are no written records left behind. Either they weren't kept or they were destroyed or forgotten by the cultures that came after them. But if we can piece together enough clues from the cultures that we do know about and the artifacts that are left behind, you might begin to understand why they may have made these lines in the desert and went to so much effort and why they were so important to them over hundreds of years and why they remain today. Because we know the how and the real meaning lies in their connection to the people. Like so many stories that we do. It's not just the thing that happened or the thing that's left behind. It's the people that are connected to it. So in trying to understand that, let's go back again to two lectures that really take a, a good dive into and more contemporary or modern look at what we know so far about these cultures. And again, that's Professor Eric Klein and Professor Edwin Barnhart. And Professor Klein sums up his lecture with a couple of good points to remember, And that one of the little-known facts about the Nazca is that they may not have been the first people to create lines like this in this region it's worth mentioning again that there was an earlier culture known as the Paracas from which the Nazca might have evolved. And they also created geoglyphs in the desert, but just further north of them. Nowadays, what would be near the modern town of Palpa? And these geoglyphs, as far as they know, date hundreds of years earlier than the Nazca ones. And again, these are found mostly on the sides of hills rather than on the flat desert floor but also with similar kinds of enigmatic biomorph forms. Uh, And that includes human figures, but also those markings, kind of like landing strip markings.
0: Yeah, and and what's interesting about this, this is the stuff we were talking about earlier with Dr. Julio Cesar Teo, who had found the mummy bundles that was in the Paracas culture, and that's what he was particularly an expert at. And he was the one that Toribio Mejia Zespi was the student of, so it all connects back. But Dr. Teo is the one that found the mummy bundles, and that was specifically rated to the Paracas culture, which he was an expert in uncovering that stuff from, which is why he is considered the father of Peruvian
1: archaeology. Exactly. But more recently, there was a German-Peruvian expedition that was studying the geoglyphs, not only in the Nazca area, but again, north to the Palpa region. And they were finding the ruins of many Nazca villages with geoglyphs, but pretty much in every settlement they found. So this suggests that there's a long history of these glyphs in the region, and some of them, as we said earlier, were superimposed on others, some obliterated or crossed over others that were older, and it's clear now that the hillsides were the perhaps the original canvas, so they didn't need to be seen from the air. And here's something else about, let's say, one of the theories that we'll be covering in part two that is one of the major ones, and it makes sense to me, but that there was some kind of processional function to these lines, and that the way that these lines were made and designed were like single line drawings, meaning one continuous line all the way around the outline. Sometimes, you know, inside they would have eyes, like we said, or uh, different features, but mostly they're consisting of an outline that's Uh, Very stylized. I believe it's the crane that has the very zigzaggy neck, which of course it is stylized, but it's extra walking space, perhaps. And if you're walking it, it's going back and forth for quite a while, so it it makes an impression on you. As I believe were the stylized drawings for the rest of these, uh, in that it was supposed to make an impression on you. Same way with what Professor Klein calls the scared cat, where it looks like to me the uh, the skinny dog with the long straight legs. The toes on the back two feet both have the same number, I believe, at three toes, but they're different numbered on the first two. So when you walk through that, maybe that has some significance or meaning, or it's supposed to as you're doing that. But here's the thing to keep in mind, I think that Professor Klein makes a good point about. Well, these could be having something to do with being processional. As he says, quote, it's quite possible that these were used as something like ceremonial processions, which has been suggested. But here we're invoking religion to explain something whose uses are not completely clear to us. So I think that's important to keep in mind as we do with everything else is that we're conjecturing here. We don't really know. It may make sense. It may be the most logical thing, but we're applying a form that we understand nowadays and and maybe understand uh, in antiquity but to a process that is unknown to us now, that is lost. So we don't really know. Like I said before, I think the analogy is that uh, if somebody tries to guess what you were doing and they tell you about it later and you realize like, no, that's not my intent at all. I wasn't really trying to do that, but they got that impression and you can see why, but they were totally wrong and maybe we're right now and maybe we're wrong. And that's the whole thing about applying the
0: filters of the present to the past, whether it's religion or any other thing that we're considering in modern times. It's like, it doesn't make sense for us to be like, well, they were doing X, Y, and Z because of this, that, and the other. And it's like, these people preceded you by a long time. It's, it's not just religion. It's everything about your existence is different from their existence. So it's very difficult to say, okay, we're going to take these filters from today's world and apply this to why would they do this? Why would they do that? They were living in
1: a completely different reality. Absolutely. And I think any archaeologist would say, go with what we can find and try to stick with that. And you can form hypotheses and theories about that. But really, let's look at what's there. And what we know for certain about the Nazca, what's been left behind is that They seem to be expert farmers. They were very skilled, ingenious about it, and they were expert artists in the crafts of pottery and textiles. Those are the things that are left behind. And what's on them, though, is the artwork, as we said before. That we can match up to the lines and see if there's anything that matches, if there's any patterns evolving. And going back to Dr. Barnhart's lecture, that's basically what he's saying about the Paracas peoples and the Nazca peoples, that for all intents and purposes, their culture is basically the same. Their arts evolved from the Paracas into the Nazca, and that includes arts, their religion. As they moved deeper into the deserts to do this farming, the Paracas sites were abandoned, and then the Nazca communities emerged. And this is the same pattern we were seeing in the north. People first settle near the coasts, of course, and then they start to move inland. As their farming techniques improve, they gain more uh, knowledge how to tame the land. They start to move deeper into the valleys, to take advantage of all this river water. And it's coming down from out of the mountains. It's plentiful, and they know how to harness it. So they were really considered some of the best farmers, the Nazca people, that their Nazca Valley or the Inca Valleys had ever seen before or since. So what were they growing? What was their diet like? Well, from what we know, it was very little seafood. Mostly, it would be things like corn and squash, sweet potatoes, And then there's the manioc. And today we know the manioc root from tapioca pudding, as it's a major ingredient there. Most people probably don't think about that. But here's the thing about manioc. It was abundant there. They were growing a lot of it. But it's an Amazonian originating vegetable, this manioc. Meaning it usually grows in more swampy, marshy areas, which is not Nazca. So to grow them, you need to bring in water. So they found the manioc to be useful to them and and probably tasty that they, they built these whole irrigation systems just to support the growth of the manioc. And what do we see also as a sophisticated irrigation system? Same thing at Pumapunku and Tiwanaku. Very sophisticated with these channels and aquifers being built. And again, Tiwanaku is only about 431 miles or 694 kilometers to the southeast of Nazca in Western Bolivia. So they both learned to harness this resource that was so precious in a desert area, water, but only for a while. Well, what else did they grow in the desert? They grew cotton, coca, which is another plant that normally doesn't grow in the desert because that also takes a lot of water. And here's another significant crop of theirs, the San Pedro cactus. As uh, Dr. Barnhart says, we can actually now see where they were making crops of that hallucinogenic plant. Now, here's a little sign thing about the San Pedro cactus. And this is just the wiki entry on it. I didn't see a need to rewrite all this because uh, it's technical. It's scientific. But the scientific name for it is Echinopsis hachanoi or Echinopsis Hacanoi. I don't know if the CH is hard or soft, but it's known as the San Pedro cactus. And it's a fast-growing columnar cactus native to the Andes Mountains at about 2000 to 3,000 meters in altitude, or 6,600 to about 9,800 feet at that altitude. And it's found in the countries of Argentina, Bolivia, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, Peru, and Venezuela. And it's also cultivated in other parts of the world. But its uses are mostly traditional medicine. There are also uses for traditional veterinary medicine. And it's also grown widely as an ornamental cactus. But I would be very careful about uh, maybe pets chewing on it. But it's been in the region for over 3,000 years. So the entry goes on to say it's used in traditional Andean medicine. Archaeological studies have found evidence of use going back 2,000 years to the Moche culture, the Nazca culture, and the Chavin culture, which is appropriate because that's what we're talking about here. And this is also interesting about the naming or the, the idea behind it. Although Roman Catholic Church authorities, and the Wiki entry wants to know who, it's not cited here but apparently after the Spanish conquest, attempted to suppress the use of this cactus, but it failed, as is shown by the Christian element in the common name San Pedro cactus, which translates to St. Peter cactus. Here's an interesting sentence after that. The name is attributed, and the wiki entry wants to know a citation, by whom? Uh, But it goes on to say, to the belief that just as St. Peter holds the keys to heaven, the effects of the cactus allow users, quote, to reach heaven while still on earth, end quote. Well, to me, that's a pretty fascinating statement I just happen to stumble upon because it may have profound and significant meaning as to why this cactus is connected to the lines themselves and the use thereof. Perhaps this was, uh, let's say, some fuel for the processions in a way. The entry goes on to say, San Pedro cactus contains a number of alkaloids, including the well-studied chemical mescaline. Mescaline is a psychedelic drug, and entheogen, and can induce a psychedelic state comparable to those produced by LSD and psilocybin, but with unique characteristics. So for those of you who are wondering what exactly the San Pedro cactus would do to you, there's an explanation that it would be similar to LSD and magic mushrooms, but has its own unique characteristics. And once again, of course, we don't recommend doing any of those kind of things because they often don't end well. So as we always recommend, do not dabble. You don't know what you're getting into. Here's
0: what's interesting about this, and I know we talked about In Search Of and the whole uh, through line, where you can draw the line from Eric Von Daniken's first book on this, The Chariot of the Gods, and how that went through to In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries and all those things that where it first came into yours and my consciousness, forest. And one of the things that I also remember was like, okay, it's this big mystery, and I'm living with this mystery. It's 5, 10, 15 years. I'm not really paying attention. I'm going to school and trying to grow up and be an adult and whatever else. And then this flood of information came into the zeitgeist about the Nazca lines. And it was like, oh, we figured it out. It was this cactus. It was a hallucinogenic cactus. And here's what happened. They drew all these pictures because everybody was going down there and they were doing the hallucinogenic cactus so that when they floated up into the sky, they could look down and see these images. And I remember thinking, oh, that's it. That's what it is. It's like, so the first chapter was, okay, these are the Nazca lines. And then the next chapter is, why were they there? And it was because they explained it through this idea that people would float up into the air and see them. Now, on Astonishing Legends, obviously, we've talked about people floating outside of their bodies and all that kind of stuff. So we can't poo-poo that or make fun of it. But I remember thinking, it's like, oh, this is mystery solved. This is a closure thing. And I feel like, and I don't know if you remember, Forrest, but I feel like that was something that came out in the 70s or the 80s. That's when everybody was talking about that. But it seems like that was jumping to conclusions. That was really trying to wrap it up before people really understood what the big picture was.
1: Well, perhaps. You know, I remember that uh, apparently there was an interview with Pete Townsend of The Who, who I think I've mentioned this before, he said he, he did some DMT, which is powerful stuff that's like almost uh obe out of body experience uh level where he claimed he floated up and was watching himself play guitar on stage maybe 40 50 feet in the air something like that just talk about a bird's eye view of your own self from your floating soul uh hopefully still connected with that silver cord, but just that would be scary, but it's also uh, transformative in a way. And you wonder then, yeah, are these people seeing something while in a spiritual trance-like state from a higher vantage point that they should not really be looking at anything from? Who knows? What we do know is that they did transform the desert with a very large organized force of labor to transform this dry land using large-scale irrigation. And again, to me, a lot like uh, Pumapunku with their channels. Well, they had something similar here. But again, Dr. Barnhart says, we have a very weak understanding nowadays of the systems of organized labor and how they accomplish this. But there are traces left behind of their labors. And one of those, as far as water is concerned, are called pukios. That's P-U-Q-U-I-O-S. So what the Nazca did was to access aquifers that were coming down from the mountains. So they would, they would dig into the mountainsides. Uh, they would look for flows of water through the stone and springs and this and that. And then they would tap into these aquifers and create these channels called pukios. And they would line them with stone. Some of them would run below ground. Some would run above ground essentially they're making these pukios as aqueducts and channeling the water to them and their crops. And once again, this leads out of the mountainside where the water's coming down and it's heading towards their crops. So it's an early form of a pretty sophisticated irrigation. Yeah. And here's what's really
0: amazing about these. This is a remarkable feat of engineering because it took understanding how the water table worked and understanding that if you could tap into it on a subterranean level what you could do is is get down into these pools that were underground and then build tunnels or aqueducts underground that would bring the water from these pools that were in a higher level down into the valley below. And it's a complicated engineering task to get that done. And it's very sophisticated. We have to understand that these folks that did this also are the ones who created the Nazca lines, And that in itself tells us that these people understand engineering, aqueducts, and how these things work. Because the reality is that in the Peruvian desert, you're not going to get water. You're not going to be able to achieve any sense of agriculture if you can't bring water down into the area. So this was a revolutionary achievement because it allowed them to farm in a place that was an inhospitable climate. Now, puquios can be both above and below ground and the ones that are above ground are ditches, and that's not a big deal. We've seen these kind of aqueducts, these are ditches, but the ones that are below ground are much more sophisticated. And with the pukeos, they can be as far as 33 feet or 10 meters below the surface. They're accessed by vertical shafts, and we have pictures on our webpage for this episode, that are called OHOs. We're going to come back to that in a second. But there may be miles of Pukio tunnels beneath the Nazca lines, and in fact, there may even be some correlation between the tunnels and the lines themselves. So historically, they are generally built from mud and clay, but it's the understanding of some researchers that it's possible that the ones under the Nazca plains are built from granite. 41 of the Pukios in Nazca were still in use as of the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, actually, it's amazing they're still being used today. However, apparently, they're not being cleaned out and maintained as well because you still need to maintain the access points, which we're going to talk about here in a second, called Ojos. Because they get clogged with sand and mud, you have to maintain them like anything else, and that has been happening for hundreds of years. But people are still drawing a little bit of water However, as more people come into the area and the population grows, that water resource is dwindling. And you can see that with a nearby oasis, a, a real live oasis, which is really cool looking. It's called the Huacachina Oasis. And there, at some point there was a, a hotel there that you could stay at and enjoy the oasis in the desert. And again, I'm not sure how long the time has passed, but when uh, Dr. Barnhart was there, they were worried that maybe it'll last for another 10 years. And I mean, being able to enjoy that hotel there and, and stay there and enjoy the water because it was rapidly drying up. They could see that every year. It was, it was vanishing. So yeah, at some point, there might not be any water for anyone to enjoy there. When you look at Hawakachina, this is spelled H-U-A-C-A.
0: C-H-I-N-A. When you look at this online, you look up at the Huacachina Oasis, it is the exact image of what you think an oasis should look like. Mm. It is surrounded by sand and then there's this beautiful resort with palm trees and everything down by a little section of water with trees growing and everything. It looks amazing. It looks like an amazing environment. So... And whatever Professor Barnhart said, I hope it's still there. I don't know if it is. I've been unable to ascertain that. I would love to go there. I would love to go to Nazca. And this is something I want to say about reading von Däniken's book. Von Däniken makes a very pointed statement (laughs) about how many people have so much to say about Nazca who've never been there. Folks that are (laughs) from researchers to everybody, and that includes us. Forrest and I have not been to Nazca. I would love to go to Nazca. I hope to get the financial freedom and the time to do that. I haven't been there, and I I think Forrest would probably say the same thing. It Mm -hmm. seems like an amazing place, but that's Von Daniken's point. It's like a lot of the people that are weighing in on this have never experienced it, and that's why we gave so much time in this episode to Dr. Rika. Dr. Rika spent her whole life there, and her perspective on it, whether or not her overarching theory was accepted or not, her perspective on it to us is one of the most important ones because she spent every waking moment of her life there uh, from a certain point on. But here's another important thing to consider. When, when you look at the Pukios, they weren't necessarily invented here. They appear in different civilizations all over the world at different time periods. The Pukios are very similar to the Qanats in Iran, or Qanats, I'm not sure how to say that, it's Q-A-N-A-T-S. They appear in Iran, Algeria, Morocco, Oman, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia. They have different regional names in different territories, but they date back to 3000 BC in Iran. In Nazca, they're thought to date to 500 CE, about 2500 years ago, but also about 2500 years after those systems appeared in the other regions. Now, there's been some dispute by archaeologists over the years about whether or not the Pukios in Nazca were of Peruvian or Spanish origin, and this is really important. They actually even went to court in the 18th century when a judge ruled in favor of them being of Hispanic origin. But there's probably a political agenda there. But in the very recent past, satellite studies done by Rosa Laspinara and Nicola Messini of the National Research Council in Italy discovered that the Puccio network was much more expansive than originally thought. Which would suggest that it was not built in the more recent hispanic past but earlier so here we get back into that thing about like who's taking credit for this amazing water technology what happens is that the conquering culture comes in and says oh yeah we invented this but it's possible that it was pre-existing so and this goes back to your point for that you said earlier about we're coming in here we're going to shove all this culture to the side even if it had better ideas than we did And we'll reinvent them and take credit for them ourselves, whether it's uh, theological, architectural, in terms of civilian development, research, all of that stuff. It behooves you as the conquering power to say, well, we came up with this. So that makes it difficult to determine what the origins are.
1: Indeed. And as they say, history is often written by the victors, but maybe not the victors, just the people that lasted the longest. And that all gets changed over the subsequent generations from an event and the truth may have gotten muddied over the years through the generations by just that telephone game thing where you never really get to the full truth but it's a blend and that's what we're left with these days and everybody wants to claim some original ownership with that so how did the people access the water because again these pukios are aquifers some of them run above ground some of them run below ground and in these stone lined chambers but you need a well or an access point of some kind. And those were called ojos after the Spanish word for eyes because they're big round pits which have a walking path that spirals down to the center where the water would spring up and they look like eyes. I imagine, again, from the air, but they're round stone pits that have been lined and kind of act as horizontal wells. So the water would spring up. You could walk down as far as you needed to. And I imagine when the water was really running, you didn't have to walk very far. Now you have to go down all the way to the very uh, center point of the Ojo. And there's some water there, but not very much. And people are still using them today. That's true. But some are blocked off as heritage sites and you can't access them. But there are people in the Nazca area and also the village of Ica that are still using them today, but they're not very well maintained again. They're just kind of using what's left over uh, for as long as they can, until they can't anymore. Well, taking a look at some of the other major archeological sites in the area of Nazca, one that is very significant and will figure prominently into one of the major theories is an area called Kawachi. This is a very large area. There are hundreds of mounds. It has a pyramid that's 70 feet tall. And for a long time, Kawachi was thought to be Nazca's capital city. But then in the 1990s, a new excavation project took place. And what their findings showed them was that Kawachi didn't really have any homes there. Another discovery was that more than 40 of these mounds were really just carved hills. They're, they're not structures that were built out of stone, stacking stone upon stone. They're just hills that were carved down. I think we mentioned this early on in the episode tonight what they found there were just scraped away from the existing hills, so it looks a lot more like sculpted landscapes than buildings, let's say, unlike Pumapunku, which are blocks. And the reason that's significant is that it didn't seem that Kawachi was a place that people were residing. It may have just been one of these other pilgrimage sites, specifically for the Nazca people. Now, the reason for this new line of thinking for Kawachi instead of it being in the capital city, is that they didn't really find any dwellings. Secondly, there's a lot of pottery at the site, but about 70% of it, as opposed to 30% of it, is this fancier polychrome pottery, they call it, which just means it has a a multitude of colors and paints used to uh, decorate it. Instead of uh, just being one or two colors, uh, there'll be some nice decoration on it. It's actually just fancier than what you would use for normal everyday use. And so that what they're saying is 30% of that is basically more plain domestic wear. And that's it's everyday stuff you wouldn't mind breaking. So fancier pottery, which also makes researchers think it was more of a ritual place than a place where people were living day to day, working, eating, having meals, just living daily life. They showed up for special occasions, that is to say. And the third thing is that this pottery is coming to Kawachi from all over the region. It's not originating there. And it reminds Professor Barnard and us, frankly, that people were bringing in offerings, just like the labyrinths at Chavin, and that they come from somewhere else. It's a special occasion. They use the pottery and some is left there or it's broken, but that's where it's found. There are other offerings there of textiles and food at Kawachi big piles of shells that are fairly far from the coast where they originated. And not really shells that they were eating, not like a bunch of oyster shells or, or clam shells that people were uh, snacking on that they just left there. These were decorative. These were fancier. So they're bringing them in as decorations, again, like we saw at Pumopunku. And here's the thing about this stuff. This stuff is gorgeous.
0: And it's thought of that way in the archaeological world. It's being particularly wonderful to look at pottery. There are depictions of animals, there's humans, they have all these colors, as Forrest said, the polychromatic colors. That was a sophisticated way of producing pottery at that time period. And the pottery was found everywhere. It it was available to both the wealthy and the less fortunate. So there wasn't an exclusivity to who could have this pottery, which says a lot about the culture overall. Now, when we come back to the stirrup vessel, which is something that I think you mentioned earlier for us, but this vessel, it's like a teapot. And when you look at this and you look at this, (laughs) you, you think about history and the origins of the things that we use today. You cannot look at the stirrup vessel and not think that the teapot came from that. Mm-hmm. It goes back that far, because the, the only thing that's different about it is that it has two spouts. So if you look at like a teapot, it's the one spout in the handle. The stirrup vessel is a handle, but both of the, uh, the spikes on either end of the handle, If uh, pardon my poor description, but both of the spikes on either end of the handle could pour the liquid out of the pot. And so that seems to be the origin of the teapot. Where did that come from? It goes all the way back, this far back in human history. So the Nazca had made a double stirrup vessel, and you could pour from either end. And then obviously, if you have those spouts, you can make those uh, an effigy, whether they could be antlers, they could be animals or plants or whatever kind of thing that you might think you want to do. Also, artistically, one of the techniques they developed was to paint first and then fire them. And apparently that was a shift from the way that the pottery had been created before. So technologically, again, they're ahead of the game. They're advancing the way that these things are constructed. But the other thing, and this is something we're going to be talking about in part two a great deal, is their development's with textiles. And this is particularly interesting to me because North Carolina, the state that I'm living in now, is known for textiles. That's one of the things that it's most famous for. In fact, there's an unparalleled industry presence, and I'm taking this from a website in North Carolina, where $1.4 billion in textile goods are exported globally every year. And I can tell you this, that my own wife's family, her parents and her parents' parents, they grew up in mills. And all around where I live now in North Carolina, it's mills, mills, and mills. The hospital here is the Cone Hospital. Those are Cone Mills. And if you haven't heard of them, then you probably aren't wearing socks right now. So it's very fascinating to me how this culture developed in Peru and it continues. Like humanity's ideas about textiles and pottery and artwork, they continue and they continue to spread. And you think, oh, I'm living in modern times. What does this have to do with me? But the reality is, All of the businesses and industries that we're in now are derivative of the things that these folks were doing all these many thousands of years ago.
1: Well, one thing that you are keying in on, my friend, is that the traditions that have happened before, generations before, get passed down, although they may have been forgotten by the the newer generations, but they end up being echoed. One case here is that, like the Paracas ancestors of the Nazca in a sense, essentially being the same culture. They also made textiles, but the Nazca did it with a tighter weave, a weave so tight, incredibly, that, well, a couple of gentlemen made a hot air balloon out of some Nazca textiles or something similar. We're going to talk about that in in our theories in part two as to uh, why they may have done that to get a higher vantage point to actually maybe guide the making of the lines. But the main point here is we wrap up part one, is that what was painted on these textiles with the Nazca can also be seen on earlier Paracas art and textiles. The themes are similar. They both had a major common theme on all their artwork, which was the priest dressed in the guise of a jaguar, but also this Fang deity, which is pretty scary looking. So... These different cultures from uh, a long time ago, and actually you could say maybe they were different people that actually moved into the area and took over the Paracas areas, but they also evolved into their own culture from this earlier culture. They shared a lot of beliefs, and again, two are the priest or shaman dressed as a jaguar. And the other one is this fang deity. And and I not got a word on uh, the name of this. So maybe that's all it's known as these days is just a fang deity that is shared by both cultures. The other thing shared along with the Paracas peoples and Pumapunku are severed heads. Again with the severed heads. (laughs) So there's lots of pottery and art uh, featuring a character that is holding a severed head. And the head could be small, like figurative, But that's clearly what it is. And like I said, it could be a a very subtle portrayal where it's not a giant gushing uh, severed head, but a small one used to represent their appreciation or fascination with the severed head. Severed heads are found very prominently in Nazca graves and in large amounts. And some are found next to the wrapped mummies where there are also textile bundles near the mummies, but they will also have these severed heads. Nearly every burial chamber in the Nazca area will have multiple skulls, which are typically called trophy heads. But here's what's interesting to note about their art and the subjects they paint. This might lead one to think that these were a very warlike people, and perhaps there there was some warring going on, but it was never really depicted in their art. As Professor Barnhart says, you never see any depictions of war, and there may be a reason for that in not so much that they weren't uh, engaging in acts of violence for whatever reason, but not against the people you might think. And another culture that also worshipped this Fang deity were the Moche. They also have representations. And I believe, uh, I, I might be wrong in that, but I also believe the Paracas also had the images of the Fang deity on their artwork, but so did the Moche, which again is a little further north and one of the richest finds ever archaeologically in a tomb we're talking national treasure level here of gold, silver artifacts. And very interesting in how it was laid out and not getting off track here, but there were several levels and there seemed to be a a mummy that was left there to watch over the other mummies and wealth that was deposited there. I don't know if that person was alive or dead when they were deposited there, but it's an interesting layout. Whoever this king was, whoever this lord was, uh, was very powerful and was given a lot of stuff to take with him into the afterlife. So to close out part one of tonight's series, I'd like to end with a thought that is expressed at the end of Dr. Barnhart's lecture, in that he seems to be more interested in the Amazonian origins of some of the things found in Nazca culture than the lines themselves. The lines might just be an offshoot of what they were doing there. But the things like the Amazonian manioc or the jaguar that are found in art of the peoples of the region With those being a two-weeks walk away, his question is, what are they doing there?
0: That's going to wrap up part one of our show on the Nazca Lines of Peru. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk drawer, which most of the time we do live on video
1: for our patrons at Patreon.com slash Legends. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana.
0: Galaxy wide. Galaxy wide. Galaxy wide. In perpetuity. perpetuity. In perpetuity. Compensation. Compensation. B-E-A-B-I-R-D.
1: Thanks. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at FounderMusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com.
0: Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request
1: to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store, at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube.
0: You can also visit us at Patreon.com astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission.
1: Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.